Beloved in the Lord, as we study God's Word this morning, we have two scripture readings to go from. First, uh, John chapter 15. That will be a bit of a background reading, and then we'll turn to our text in James chapter 2. John 15 is our first scripture reading. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first eight verses. John 15, verse 1, John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John 15, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word together. John 15, 1. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now we'll turn to James, James chapter 2. James comes just after Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament. James chapter 2 precedes Peter, precedes the letter of John, letters of John. And for James 2, we're going to be reading verse 14 to the end of the chapter, and that will also be our text, James 2, 14 to the end of the chapter. Then we read, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Thus far the reading of God's word, our focus again, James 2, verse 14, and we'll take it right through to the end, verse 26 of that chapter. Well, beloved Lord, I I heard a few Bibles sliding back into the pews. Uh, uh, Keep them open, please. Uh, Have your Bibles in hand. We're studying God's word. We can go through them together, and you're going to need to flip to a few other passages, perhaps, uh, if uh, we get there. Uh, by God's grace, as we study God's word together today. So as we begin, I want to begin by asking the question, is James 2 inspired? Is James 2 inspired? Now this may sound like a fairly heretical question, you may wonder who you have on your pulpit this morning. 
But that's the question I want to ask. And the reason I want to ask it is because one of the great forefathers of the Reformation, Martin Luther himself, struggled with the book of James. I don't know if you know about the Reformation. The Reformation was that historical event happening uh, over a number of years, but beginning perhaps most notably in 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And they began the fight for what is in reality... Uh, the understanding of Scripture and how someone is made right with God. It's the doctrine called justification by faith alone. And it's the idea and concept that the only way for a sinner to be made right with a holy God is through believing in Jesus Christ. If you know the history of the event, you may know that the Reformation was something where those who held on and regained the truth of Scripture were fighting against the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church had many errors in its teaching. It continues to have many errors in its teaching today. But one of the key ones they argued against, among others, was the idea the Roman Catholics taught that you were made right with God by believing in Jesus, yes, but also by doing enough good. That your acceptance before God was based upon a combination of trust also with what you did. And Luther stood against that as he read God's word, as he discovered the truths of God's word. He stood against that to say, no, you are made right with God only through faith in Jesus. Now, when Luther came to the book of James, the letter of James, he struggled with it initially. Uh, when he was younger, he called the letter of James an epistle of straw, which is to say it has no weight, no substance, nothing worthwhile in it. Later on, he rescinded that and realized, of course, it's God's word, and he found much more in it. But initially, he had a little struggle, and one of his great struggles was with our chapter, James 2. It begins with those words, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Beloved Lord, as we study God's word this morning, we want to see how and why God has inspired all of Scripture and why all of Scripture, including James 2, is a beautiful exposition of the gospel. Because when we look at the book of James and we look at James 2, we see a, a picture, a teaching that reminds us that indeed faith saves, faith in Christ saves. But the faith that joins you to Christ transforms you. The faith that joins you to Christ makes you new. And James's beauty is just showing us what living faith is all about. What does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean to come to him as the anchor of your soul? What does it mean to ask him for forgiveness? What happens when the condemned sinner is brought by God? To trust in Jesus. And James's whole point is simply this. When you come to Christ, you will never be, never be the same. When you come to Christ, you will be made new. And that is glorious and that is beautiful. We're going to be studying this passage this morning in three points as we study God's word. First, we want to see the problem that James sets before us. The problem. Second, we'll see a wrong answer. A wrong answer to the problem. And third, the right answer. To the problem. First, the problem he sets before us. Second, the wrong answer that he provides or presents. And then the right answer that he gives. We begin with the wrong answer. Looking at the first uh, three verses, four verses, 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
Uh, we begin then with the uh, verses, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? I, I, I want to ask your indulgence a little this morning uh, because I want to uh, use as an illustration a song from my college days. All right, so I got to ask for your forgiveness already. Uh, it was 1999, and one of my favorite Christian music artists, a man by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman, released a new CD. Uh, for all you kids who don't know what a CD is, you can ask your grandparents after the service. A CD, yes, it was called Speechless. And on this CD, he had a song called The Change. And for a young Christian man, uh, eager to learn and grow, this one happened to, to hit me at the time. And it stuck with me a little bit. I want to read you some of the lyrics from that song this morning. It says this. I won't sing it. I got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe. I got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. I got a necklace and a keychain and almost everything a good Christian needs. I have the little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door and a welcome mat to bless you before you walk across my floor. I have a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though this stuff's all well and good, I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? Now, there's all kinds of lyrics out there and there's all kinds of songs. By God's grace, that was a helpful one for me. Because it's so easy to make the Christian faith about externals, but having the right virtue signals instead of having a heart that has been gripped and transformed by the grace of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. And as James begins his section, James is a very practical writer. James zeroes in on all kinds of elements of, of, of holiness and what it means to be made new. But as James begins to do that, he begins to, to hit a possible problem, a problem that someone claims to have faith, but all they have is the external, all they have is the words. They don't have a life that backs them up. And he goes on to give an illustration, the illustration he gives of someone who's impoverished. And, and then two brothers meet, a brother or a sister perhaps, meet, and they are naked, and one is naked and destitute of food. They have nothing to, to, to clothe themselves, their clothes are rags, they have very little food, they're very hungry. And this is a brother or sister in Christ to you. And James says, what happens if you meet someone like this? What happens if you come across someone? Maybe today, maybe in church today, you find out someone is, is just absolutely rock bottom and they're hoping to come out to the, the, the lunch because they have nothing to eat at home. And James says, what would happen if you said to them, boy, I, I see your troubles, I hear you're having a tough time, I hope God helps you. I hope you find food. I hope you get a nice warm jacket. Have a great day. And James says, what good is that? What good is it to meet someone who has tremendous need and give them nothing but words if their need is physical? What benefit does it give? James points out that for all your warm wishes, for all your talk, 
There's actually no power, there's no significance behind your words, and the person you are claiming to care for, the person you are claiming to help, is left empty and powerless. And in the same way, in the same way, a so-called faith, and this is very significant, uh, we have the New King James before us, this is the Bible we use in our church as well, it's a wonderful translation, I love it. But there's something this translation misses a little bit in this text, and it's this. Then in verse 14, when, when James says, can faith save him, there's actually in the Greek a definite article before the word faith. A definite article. Now, what does that mean? A definite article before the word faith. Well, if you know your grammar, the definite article can be sometimes translated as the word the, but it speaks of a specific faith, not just a general faith, a specific faith. And to capture that definite article, the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, They all translate it with with something extra there. They say, can this faith save him? Or can such faith save him? If someone claims to have faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save the individual? And what James begins with is just a picture to say that if the faith you think you have is just talk, you aren't redeemed. If the faith you claim to have is just talk, you are not redeemed. That's the problem. Let's look at a possible solution, a wrong solution. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead, says James. It profits nothing. Verse 18, some will say, you have faith and I have works. In the church, there are all kinds of different people and everyone has a different gifting. This is something very beautiful and very significant about the body of Christ. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 12. It is important. It is, it is, it is wonderful. Uh, I like seeing people who have passions for different types of ministries In the last month, month and a half, I've spoken with someone who had a tremendous passion for pro-life and fighting against abortion. And it was wonderful to hear their zeal for defending the unborn. It is something indeed every Christian should be praying about and as we're able, striving to fight against. I talked to another Christian who had a great zeal for the impoverished and they tried to do what they could to help to feed the poor. They're involved in soup kitchens. They're involved in organizing churches to serve meals to those who are needy. And it was great to see their passion and their zeal. I've spoken with other Christians who are very, very, very involved in, in the political world, in the idea of trying to write letters and, and, and move through political channels to help to turn back some of the laws in our nation that have been taking us in some bad directions. And that's a wonderful thing to be involved with. The beauty of the body of Christ is that it's okay for us all to have different emphases and different ministries and different passions within the God-given gifts that God has laid upon our hearts. It's wonderful to see God raising up certain Christians to fight for pro-life. It's wonderful for God to raise up other Christians to, to fight to feed the poor. These are wonderful ventures, and God uses the entire body of Christ to build the kingdom of God. Does that apply to this question, though? James poses before us in verse 18 this argument 
He is saying faith without works is dead. Faith without works is not real faith. And James comes along and says, well, what happens if someone said, you have faith, you have that gift of faith, you, you have that gift of talk. I, I'm the one who does the practical service. And this happens in the church, doesn't it? We've seen people in the church, and they love to serve in the church, but they hate the spotlight. They would never be the people, perhaps, to take on a teaching role in the church. They don't like that. But if you need someone to work in the kitchen and no one to ever know they were there, or they spent 12 hours straight doing dishes for the young people, these would be the people to do it, right? They exist in the church. They're beautiful. They're wonderful people. And James is saying, what happens if someone comes along and says, listen, you have faith, I have works. I'm more of a servant. You're more of a talker. Is that part of the differentiation that comes in the body of Christ? Can we say some people just have a gift that's more external, talking, and others have a gift that's more private, serving? But they're both Christians. Can we say that? Can we say that? This is the wrong answer. James goes on to say this, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now we are in Niagara, so I have to ask a question, how many of you know the great Blondin? How many of you know the great Blondin? None? Well, let me tell you, Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker. And one of his most famous feats was walking a tightrope across the Niagara River Gorge, roughly in the place where the Rainbow Bridge stands today. He did it in 1859. Tightrope walked across the Niagara River Gorge. After he did it once, he decided to make it more difficult. He did it with a blindfold on. After he did it with a blindfold on, he did it wearing stilts. After he did it wearing stilts, he took a wheelbarrow across. After he took a wheelbarrow across, he actually took a camp stove and the ingredients for an omelet. He walked across the tightrope to the middle of the Niagara River Gorge, cooked himself an omelet, ate the omelet, and then finished his journey. It, you, it's, 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 as far as I know, it's true. <laughs> because I read it online. <laughs> In all seriousness, no, this, this is a story that goes back some time. He was a very, very famous man. After he did all these incredible things on a tightrope across the Niagara River Gorge, he said to the crowd of people who came to watch him, how many of you believe that I can carry a man on my back across the tightrope? And the people who just watched this man walk across the tightrope on stilts, they just watched this man cook an omelet and eat it, and they were like, wow, you're the greatest. Of course you can carry someone on your back across a tightrope on the Niagara River Gorge. And you can do it. You're the great Blondin. And then he asked that key question, any volunteers? Any volunteers? If you know the rest of the story, he did carry someone on his back across the Niagara River Gorge, but it was his manager. Because no one volunteered. James says... Can you say, you have faith and I have works? And he goes on to say, no, you can't do that. For this reason, show me your faith without your works. Show me what belief looks like if you won't put your money where your mouth is. Show me what faith looks like if you won't trust the person you say you believe in. You may say you trust the great blonde and you may say he can carry someone on his back across the tightrope, but if you aren't willing to be the one on his back, do you really believe it? 
Do you really believe it? Show me your faith without works, says James. It can't be done. Instead, I'll show you my faith by the way I live. You'll know what I believe by the way I live my life. He goes on. You believe there is one God. We read this morning from the most famous Old Testament passage among the Jewish people. It was Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. We read it before reading the law from Deuteronomy 5. It is called the Shema. The word Shema is taken from the Hebrew word hear or listen. And the Shema was something that was considered to be a very sacred portion of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Every pious Jew, and then it goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Every pious Jew would recite the Shema twice a day. Once in the morning, once when they went went to bed. You'll notice we read the story of how that law shall be on your heart. You will bind it on your eyes, write it on your hand. And faithful Jews would take that commandment. They'd wrap it up. They'd write it down on a little piece of paper. They'd put it in a little leather box and they'd wear it. It It's called a phylactery. They'd wear it on their clothing, a little box that held that commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was foundational both to Christianity and to the Jewish understanding of God. James takes that idea. You believe that God is one. You do well. You should know your doctrine. You should know what the Bible teaches. You have a belief into the nature of God. Good. Then he says these words. But even the demons believe and tremble. Have you ever watched the interaction of Jesus with demons when he walked upon the earth? Have you ever seen the way that Jesus interacted with demons, demon-possessed people? At one time, he comes upon a man in the Gadarenes. He lives among the tombs. If you remember the story, he could break chains apart with his bare hands and no one could bind him. He had within him so many demons that they called themselves legion, a number representing perhaps over a thousand demons. When Jesus approaches this man, demon-possessed man, If you read in Matthew 8, I believe, they cry out as Jesus comes near and they say, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? I want you to realize what those demons understood. They knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the son of God. They even knew he would win. They knew one day he would be their judge. Have you come to torment us before the time? And yet they did not bow the knee to Christ. They did not bow the knee to Christ. They had a head knowledge that did not make it to the heart And James says, listen, even demons have head knowledge. Even demons understand the nature of God. But it does them no good. They tremble in their boots because they aren't redeemed. They haven't bowed their heart. They haven't asked forgiveness. They haven't cried out to God for mercy. They haven't come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Even the demons believe, says James, and tremble. We once had someone who sought membership in a church where I served as a pastor. They came to church every Sunday twice. They came wearing, generally, a good-looking suit. 
He had a family. They asked for membership. We did a, an elder visit. I happened to go on that one. I don't go on all the visits for membership. I happened to go on that one. And as we interviewed the family, we found out the wife had a testimony of faith in Jesus and the husband did not. He could say he believed Jesus was real. He could say he believed Jesus was the Son of God. He could say he believed Jesus died and rose from the dead, but he could not say he personally trusted in Jesus Christ. He could not say he loved the Lord. He could not say he was forgiven of sins by the grace of God. And it's a remarkable thing because we came back and reported on the visit to the consistory and said, I'm afraid we recommend the wife for membership, but we don't recommend the husband. And the elders in the room said, what? He's here every Sunday. He he behaves well in church. How can this be? They were so flabbergasted that we did another interview and sent different men. And the men went and did a different interview. And they came back and said the same thing. We recommend the wife for membership, but the husband we cannot receive. You say there is one God. You do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. What do we have here? What is James doing? What is James teaching us? Why is James saying this to the church? Because he writes to the saints. What is he doing? He is warning us. He is warning us that there can be a fakeness. There can be an externalness that we think will satisfy a holy God. We can go through motions. We can say words without a heart gripped by the gospel. And James is saying to us, if you do that, if that's where you find yourself, be careful. Watch out. Because you don't share good company. You're in the company of demons. Is the answer possibly that one can have a life more of faith and one a life more of service and genuineness? The answer is no. True faith is never merely intellect. It is never merely external. What is it then? What is it? What's the right answer? Where does James take us? And for this you need to have your Bibles open again. So he goes to our father Abraham. And he says this in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that faith, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. This is a, a very difficult passage. What is James saying and where is he going with it? What is he telling us? Is he saying that the Roman Catholics were right? Is he saying the only way for us to be made truly right with God is if we do enough good works? What is he saying? There's a few things to cover as we hit this passage and a few things that are very important. First of all, the word justified in verse 21, the word justified that's also repeated uh, later on in verse 24 it doesn't always mean the same thing. It doesn't always mean the same thing. There are words that can sound the same and mean something different. If I told you that last night I slept very poorly, I slept very, very poorly because there was a bat in my house, what would you think? I slept poorly because there was a bat in my house. What would you think? You'd probably think that sometime during the night there was a little black, furry, winged creature flying around in my house, right? Hopefully, that's what you're thinking. 
but what happens if I said to you, no, 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 it wasn't a flying bat, it was a baseball bat. I didn't sleep well last night because I had a baseball bat in my house. So you'd shake your head and you'd scratch your head and say, okay, pastor, hope you sleep better today, right? The word bat can mean two things. When Paul speaks of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, he's speaking of something where we speak of the word and saying, that's what makes you right with God. Faith in Christ makes you right with God. When he's speaking here of justified, that Abraham was justified, he's using it in a different way. He's using it the way Jesus used in Luke 7. I can't remember the exact quote. I believe it's Luke 7, where he says that wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by her children. What does he mean by that? He means that wisdom is proven to be true. Wisdom is proven to be real by the fruit of it. And when James is speaking of Abraham being justified by works, what he's saying is Abraham was proven to be true. He was shown to have true faith when he lived a life where he gave everything for God. And we're going to just go back in the Old Testament really briefly to see how that's signified and shown. Now, James says in James chapter 2 that Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. For tremendous bonus points... If you know the chapter where Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar, you can whisper to the person beside you. This gives you bragging rights later on today. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. All right, so just flip over to Genesis 22 in your Bibles. Keep your finger or thumb in James 2. So James says, wasn't Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled. This is James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Now, does anyone know where it was said, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness? There's another bonus points question. It's Genesis 15. So keep a finger in Genesis 22 now and flip to Genesis 15. And now we're just going to do a little bit of mathematics. Genesis 15 is where God said to Abraham, look at the stars, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham, who didn't have a single child, believed God. And in Genesis 15, 6, the Lord says through his inspired word, Abraham believed in the Lord, and God accounted to him for righteousness. Now, look through the chapters between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 and watch what happens. In Genesis 16, if you have a heading, your heading might read Hagar and Ishmael. If you remember the Bible story, Abraham, believing he had to have kids, Sarah, his wife, believing he had kids, thought maybe he'll have a child through someone else since Sarah can't conceive. And so Abraham took Sarah's servant Hagar and gave, she gave birth to Ishmael. Conception is about a year, and then Ishmael is born. So a year has passed. Chapter 17, the sign of the covenant is given, circumcision. Look at verse 25, 1725. It says, Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. So now you have the year roughly of um, the child being born. Then you have 13 years passing before Ishmael is is, uh, circumcised. Ishmael has now been 14 years since God said to Abraham, you're righteous, 14 years. But keep on looking. In chapter 18, we have a little bit more of a promise, but not till chapter um, 21 is Isaac born. Now, we don't know how much time has passed in those chapters, but some time will have passed. 
But God gave the promise when the angels came to speak of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God said, in one year, Sarah will have a son. So we're at 14 years now. Another year added on there makes 15. 15 years have passed. Then in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. 15 years have gone by at least since God said to Abraham he was righteous. In Genesis 22, this son Isaac carries the wood up the mountain in verse 6, Genesis 22, 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. This was enough wood to consume a lamb or a ram in a burnt offering. How old do you think Isaac was to carry that much wood up the hill by himself? Any guesses? We had a little guy in the front row at my home church cry out, 12! I was like, yeah. Let's take his guess, 12. How many years have passed again? At least 15 years. And then you have to wait till Isaac's old enough to carry the wood for an offering up the hill by himself. Let's say it's 12. 15 and 12 is 27 years. At least 27 years have passed between the time when Abraham offers his son the Isaac and God said to Abraham, you are righteous. I want to ask you a question. Did Abraham live in doubt for 27 years? Is that what James is teaching us? Is James saying that for 27 years, Abraham had the promise from God that he was righteous, but he couldn't believe it until his works finally made it true? Is that what James is saying? How could Abraham have ever lived 27 years in a time of barrenness and struggle? In a time when his wife couldn't conceive, believing the promise of God, if he did not know that God was for him, if he did not know that by the grace of God, he was a friend of the Most High, redeemed by the blood of a spotless lamb, how could he survive for 27 years? Did his work save him? The answer is absolutely not. The moment Abraham believed, he was made forever right with God. But James's point is simply this. You see that faith. When God tells Abraham to take his only son, the son that he loves, and to offer him as a sacrifice to God, and Abraham does so, believing that God is going to raise the dead to fulfill his word. James's point is this. Abraham had a living faith. Abraham had a faith that joined him to Christ, and the fruit of it was seen in the way he lived And the challenge of James to you and to me is simply this. What about you? And what about me? Is our faith more than words? Has it brought us to Jesus? Has it helped us to see that all our righteous works are filthy rags? Has it broken our pride? Has it humbled us to the point where we have known that all we can have for hope is Christ? And then has God broken our hearts and overwhelmed them by showing us that when we know the depth of our sinfulness, He overfills us with the depth of His love and shows us how much He's willing to do for broken sinners. Because when that love is made known to you, it transforms you. That song from Stephen Curtis Chapman, What About the Change?, had a section in between the verses where it read one, a section in between the choruses or something like that, where it read one verse over and over again with a bunch of little children reading it. And the verse it read was our assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Beloved in the Lord, God is not asking you for perfection. God is not asking you to put your hope for heaven in the way you live. But he is saying this, that when you come to Christ, you will never be the same again. You are made new. And if you have not been made new, and I know this is a caution. I know we need to speak of this carefully. Because the longer you live in the Christian life, if you are living a genuine, sincere life for God, the longer you live in the Christian life, the more aware you will become of your sins and your failings. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the man who was once a slave trader who God redeemed, said at the end of his life, two things I know, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior. The more you grow in the Christian faith, the more you will realize you're sinning against the God who loves you, the more it will sting you for the ways you aren't who you're supposed to be. So we don't ever want to make our assurance based upon the way we live. But neither do we want to ignore the fact that Jesus Christ is a true Savior. He really redeems, He really transforms, He really makes new. And if you are looking at your life and you are saying, I don't have a heart for God, and this can happen, this can happen. In the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus and he said, I remember your works, Revelation 2. I remember your life, I remember your zeal, I remember the the passion you had for me. I remember how you tested those who were evil and you cast them out. But this I have against you, you have lost your first love. Repent, therefore, or I will come and take away your lampstand. Beloved in the Lord, if your Christian walk has grown external, if you are going through the motions, if you are just saying the words, and your heart is no longer gripped by the grace of God in Christ, please hear the warning of a God who loves you. Words cannot save. Christ can And so you bring your emptiness and you bring your brokenness and you bring the fact that sometimes you just live in the externals and you bring it all to Jesus. And you confess your sin and you ask for grace and you find a grace that not only will cleanse you from all unrighteousness but will take the dimness of your soul away. He can take away the hardness of your heart. He can make you new. He did it for Abraham. And James gives a counterexample in Rahab, a woman who lived the life of a prostitute, but was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it doesn't matter where you've gone, and it doesn't matter where you've come from. Christ is such a Savior that He makes the wounded whole. And he makes the dead alive. But let us never empty the gospel. Let us never empty the gospel so it becomes merely an external show of words. It is always meeting the living Christ. And it is finding life through the one that gave his life that you might be redeemed.
Beloved in the Lord, faith is a beautiful and glorious thing because it joins you to a glorious Savior who will never leave you the same. Let us know what it is to find him. Let us know what it is to take hold of him. Let us know what it is to love him. Let us know what it is to never let him go because by his grace he never lets us go. Let's love the fact that God through the years will draw us nearer and nearer to the one who is the anchor and finisher of our faith. And may the day come when we see that our faith is by the grace of God, not in vain. But as granted that we can be more than overcomers through him who loved us. Beloved, may we rejoice in a living faith because we rejoice in a living Savior. May that be our testimony and thanksgiving every day till Christ calls us home. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Dear Lord and Father God, we come to you this morning and we, uh, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your help. We confess, Lord, how often that we can become external Christians, how often we can slide. We can slide into an outward show. We can slide into a facade. And Lord, we ask that you will forgive us of such sin. We confess you are worthy of so much more. I pray, Lord, that not in self-righteousness, but, Lord, in genuine contrition of heart and genuine trust in Jesus, that, Lord, you will show the all-surpassing powers of God and not of man, and you will make us alive and new and keep us in the joy of salvation for which you have redeemed us. We pray, Lord, that you will grant us to know the beauty of a constant conviction that leads to grace and the beauty of a conviction that leads to assurance. We may know we are Christ's and he is ours. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace you will build us up as your people in a life that is filled with faith and therefore also filled with works that show the beauty the Savior has redeemed us and bought us and purchased us at the price of his own blood. So will you hear our our prayers we ask and draw us closer to you, we pray.